Hey, Chicago, let's party. I'm going to be in town next week, Saturday, November 18th. I'm doing a college football watch party at the 5050 2047 West Division Street. 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., swing on by. Let's watch some college football. Let's drink some beers. Let's eat some wings. Let's break down the Week 11 NFL slate. The 50-50-2047 West Division Street from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. next Saturday, November 18th. And now, back to your regularly scheduled degenerate broadcasting. Welcome to the Sharp 600, brought to you by Covers.com. Give us 600 seconds and we'll give you the tools you need to improve your handicapping. Great to have you all in with us today. My name is Joe Fortenball, and here is what we've got cooking for today's episode. Believe it or not, we've cashed in six of our last eight Thursday night football picks. So as is custom around these parts, we'll close our early week episode with a look at Thursday night football in week 11. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Rufus Peabody, who, in my opinion, is one of the bright young minds when it comes to applying advanced analytics to professional sports. And not only that, but Rufus runs a model that predicts the rankings for the college football playoff, which provides tremendous insight into the committee's thought process. So, without further ado... He's one half of the team at Massey Peabody Analytics. You can catch he and Jeff Ma on the Bet the Process podcast, which is available on iTunes, and it's a tremendous listen. You can also follow him on Twitter at Rufus Peabody. Rufus Peabody joining us here on the Sharp 600. He's one half of the team at Massey Peabody Analytics. You can follow him on Twitter at Rufus Peabody and check out the podcast that he does with Jeff Ma, Bet the Process, which is available on iTunes, Rufus Peabody joining us here on the Sharp 600. Rufus, thank you so much for your time. It is greatly appreciated. Usually I jump right in the content here, but I've been following you on Twitter, man. Tell me about this thing you're doing called Remote Year because I'm kind of jealous you get to travel the world while still handicapping sports. I'm getting to travel for 12 months in 12 different cities for a month each with a group of 52 basically strangers who are all working remotely. It's this program called Remote Year. They basically take care of all the logistics, the accommodations, co-working space, and yeah, it's a great community. It's a really pretty cool program. Where I mean, are you at right now? I'm in Lisbon. Oh my God, how's that? It's a gorgeous city. <laughs> a lot yeah. a lot like San Francisco, actually, in terms of the terrain. All the hilliness right on the water. I'm looking at a bridge with lights like the Golden Gate Bridge from my balcony. How do they feel about the use of advanced analytics in Lisbon? Because that's exactly where I want to start. Why do you think there's so much resistance to the analytical movement? I don't necessarily want to use Charles Barkley as an example, but it feels like there are a lot of old-time guys who have this aversion to embracing the analytical movement. Why do you think that is? Well, I think first off, inertia. People are resistant to change, and that's a general truth, I think. Um, and as human beings, we love using our intuition, even though it's been demonstrated time and time again to be faulty. Just look at you know be, the behavioral economics uh, field. We, we believe our hearts over our head and, and we tend to sort of impute patterns on data when no patterns exist because we, wanna, we want to find an explanation. And, and the thing is, even with advanced analytics, there's only so much we can explain. And I think that that's, it's a challenge. 
the Cleveland Browns are supposedly at the forefront of the analytical movement in the National Football League with the recent hire of former baseball executive Paul D. Podesta to the front office. How big of a blow will it be to the analytics movement if the Browns experiment fails? You know, I don't think it'll, it'll be a big blow at all, or at least it shouldn't be. You know, the Sixers, Browns, and Astros are all organizations that have openly embraced analytics in different sports with wildly divergent results. But you can't really evaluate a process just solely based on the results, especially when the results are going to be influenced so much by luck. You know, with the Browns, um, you know, you have a handful of draft picks that will really play a huge role in determining the direction of a franchise. And if you get lucky on those, you're going to be good. If you get unlucky, you're going to be bad. And the Browns have not done so well with the draft picks. Um, same with uh, the Sixers for a while, but it looks like, I mean, I'm not a basketball guy. It seems like they're, they're turning things around, though. So where do you land on the theory of tanking in professional sports? Because on one hand, you have the fans who mimic Herm Edwards and say, you play to win the game. And then on the other hand, you have the analytical minds that say, well, it's better to have the number one draft pick than the number two or three or fourth overall draft pick. Well, I don't think you're intentionally losing it, but you're you're building a roster with the goal of being great in a few years, with basically with an eye towards the future rather than towards the now. And I think... You know, I, I'm a Baltimore Orioles fan and a Washington Redskins fan, and I think the Orioles are a prime example of a team that probably should be tanking, should be trading away the assets they have, but just haven't done that. They kind of are trying to build, to, they're trying to win now, but at the same time build for the future, and it just doesn't work. And I think teams that don't have the resources to compete with, um, especially in an unsalary capped league, really need to sort of be smart about how they allocate their resources. And I think it's frustrating that teams don't do it more often. I mean, I do think if every team sort of embraced this, it, it could hurt the product overall. But but as a fan, I, I mean, of a team, I would be all for my team looking towards the future. I've long maintained that the worst place to be in professional sports is the middle. I want to be either competing for a title, one of the haves, or I want to be competing for the number one overall pick, one of the have-nots. But my personal belief is that the worst possible spot to be is that middle ground where you might be the last playoff seed in or you might be the last lottery pick in the NBA. Would you agree with that? You know, I, I couldn't agree more. And as an Orioles fan, the, the Orioles have been stuck there for exactly. the last 20 years. When we're talking about handicapping football, specific games on a week-to-week -week basis, you are big in the analytical movement. What analytics do you look to as most important when trying to handicap games and set power numbers? I know yards per play is a big one. What else should we be keeping an eye on? Yards per play is a good one, but I think play success is often overlooked, which basically just says, is this does this particular play increase or decrease a team's expected points on that drive? You know, if you just use yards per play, there's problems there. I think goal line plays will never be properly valued. You know, third and one at the opponent's one, you gain a yard and it decreases your yards per play. But at the same time, I know a lot of people like using the sort of expected points added metric, which basically says um, every play is measured as sort of the surplus um, value over expectation. And so I think that is great in terms of explaining games, but it ends up being the high, le the high leverage plays, you know, the goal lines, the third and fourth and shorts, sort of from a predictive standpoint. How much does situational awareness, situational handicapping factor into what you do with your model? For example, do you believe in the revenge factor? You know, I, I'm sort of against the situational thing. I think that if there is a situation that has a fundamental effect, you can sort of quantify that. And then, um, for example, distance traveled 
is is important in home field advantage. But revenge factor, in short, I'd say no. Um, I don't think the data really speaks to it. And you know, I, I tend to believe that these are professional athletes and college athletes, I guess, as well, doing a job. They all have something to play for. I know football is an emotional game, but I guess in my handicapping, I tend to treat them as robots, for better or for worse. The Eagles are on top of a very appealing NFC this year, but the Seahawks are always going to be hovering around based on experience and recent track record. The New Orleans Saints are surging. How do you power rank the NFC at the moment? The Saints actually are the top team in the NFC, according to my power ratings, followed by the Eagles, Seahawks, Vikings, and Falcons. Rams are below that, actually. At Massey Peabody, you guys have an article that appears in the Washington Post every week regarding college football, the top four, the rankings, and how the playoff could shake down. When and where can people find that? And then specifically, what's without giving away necessarily the secret sauce, what are the keys that you're looking for to evaluate who the four best teams in the country are? Well, the article is actually the thing that I'm most excited about or that I've been most excited about doing this football season. Kate and I, it's in the Washington Post every Monday. It's in the fancy stats um, section. The It's an analysis piece. And we're looking at the week ahead, well, I'm reviewing the previous week with an eye towards the college football playoff. So this week, we, for example, we actually went through and uh, looked at the sort of the nine teams that are really still alive for the college football playoff and, and where we project the committee to rank them now and what their playoff chances are and sort of what their path is, how much they control their own destiny. And so we, when we try to figure that out, we've, we sort of, well, first off, we simulate the season 20,000 times using our predictive uh, ratings and accounting for dynamic uncertainty, meaning that a team's rating will, can change over time and does. So just because a team isn't that great now doesn't mean they can't improve or they can't get worse. Um, we also, at the end, you know, we, we simulate the conference championships and actually simulate the committee's decision making, which is the biggest challenge. And, and the one, it's a huge exercise in humility because you're you're trying to create an objective model to, um, to model the subjective, inherently subjective decision making process of a group of twelve people. So I mean that's challenging, but but I think it's sort of it's fun because there's some art involved in it too. We're trying to identify metrics that we think the committee would, uh, the committee won't be specifically looking at these metrics, but that correlate well with how they've made decisions in the past. In terms of marquee wins, how high does that rank on the scale when factored into ranking these teams? Well, we don't really say this team has this many marquee wins, but we do look at their strength of, of record, which basically it's, we sort of co-opted a, a statistic ESPN developed, which strength of record, it's the probability that an average top 25 team would win as many games as that team did. And so that doesn't account for margin of victory, but it says, you know, it's a way of comparing teams and how big their wins were, I guess, and how bad their losses were for that matter as well. At the current moment, how do you see the final four shaping up? What's the most likely final four? The most likely, um, well, first off, the best teams at the moment, I think, are Alabama, Ohio State, Auburn, and Clemson. But those aren't the teams that'll be in the committee's top four this week. That's the best from a predictive standpoint. So you have, okay, so Bama, Ohio um, State, Auburn, and Clemson are your top four in terms of just outright best teams. Just exactly. Wow. That, that's power rankings. But, but where, do you have of, my, um, where do you have Miami? Number 14. They're number 14. 14. And that, that uses a prior. If, if we don't use a prior, well, actually, we, if we only use a prior to assess strength of schedule, we only, still only have them at number 11. So, yeah, they've. 
the win against Notre Dame was was a very good game for them, but it's still only one game, and they've played a bunch of tight games against inferior teams. In terms of uh, in terms of looking towards uh, the final bracket, we think that the we think Alabama, Clemson, Oklahoma, and Georgia are the most likely teams. So we think there's a actually close to a coin flip that the SEC gets gets two teams, but uh, it is interesting. There's a bunch like Oklahoma; they basically control their own fate. Um, Clemson does as well. Alabama does. Miami and Wisconsin both do. Auburn does. So there, it, it's really interesting because there's so many teams that if they win out, they'll be in or have at least a 90% chance. But obviously, they can't all win out. In your opinion, is it more helpful or hurtful to have a conference championship game? Well, I think it depends on the situation. This year, it's worse for the Big 12 to have one because Oklahoma would be, I think, clearly in if right now, if uh, if there was no Big 12 title game. I know having the title game sort of reactive um, to what happened in the past and the Big 12 getting shut out. But in general, I mean, it, it the more competitive teams there are, I think the more it helps because it gives you another chance to have a marquee win. But it can also create a situation where you have a lot of chaos and where you have a you know a, a two loss conference champion, which no no conference really wants, or even more than that. I mean, you could see a three loss conference champion um, this year, possibly in the Pac-12. When the committee rankings come out this Tuesday, how do you see them ranking the top four and beyond? Well, I think Alabama is pretty locked in at number one now after Georgia's loss. Two to five are pretty clumped. The order we have it is Miami, Clemson, Georgia, and Oklahoma. But my gut says that Oklahoma will be in that top four. Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised by any ordering of those four teams. Uh, six is Wisconsin, seven Auburn, eight Notre Dame, nine Ohio State, and ten Oklahoma State. But you know, there's a large degree of uncertainty in this. Of course, you know, as I said, we're, we're predicting like a bunch of humans making a, dis- object- a subjective decision. So. You can follow him on Twitter at Rufus Peabody. He's one half of the analytical team at Massey Peabody Analytics. And you can also check out he and Jeff Ma on the Bet the Process podcast, which is available on iTunes. Rufus Peabody joining us here on the Sharp 600. Rufus, great conversation. Thanks for joining us all the way from Lisbon. I really appreciate it, man. I hope we can do it again soon. For sure. Thanks for having me, Joe. It says here we should work in teams. Who wants to be my spotter? Seattle, Arizona stayed under the total in last week's Thursday night football game. So we are now 6-2 against the number over our last eight Thursday night football picks. Time to go to work. Thursday night football, week 11. Pittsburgh minus 7 with a total of 43.5 against the Tennessee Titans. Big time wake-up call for the Steelers in week 10 as they came off the bye and barely got past the Indianapolis Colts. 20 to 17. On the flip side, get this. Tennessee is just 7 and 20 against the spread over their last 27 road games, and the Titans have only covered 17 times over their last 62 games overall. That's amazing. That's amazingly bad is what that is. Pittsburgh's missed one cover in their last five Thursday night games. We're going to lay the touchdown with the Steelers. We're also going to open up a few six-point teasers with the Steelers to kick off our Week 11 NFL betting card. All right, boys and girls, that's it for this installment of the Sharp 600. Thank you so much for your time. We greatly appreciate it. If you get the opportunity, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Until Wednesday when we're back with our college football picks, be well and best of luck.